So we're carrying on today in our study called A Longing, and we're actually going to turn this around a little bit today, and I want to ask the question, what does God long for? We've been talking about the things that we long for. We've been talking about the fact that what we're longing for often is aimed forward, and many of the things that um, are in our human experience or the stories of the Bible are about the future. And today I want to just take a pause and ask, well, what does God long for? Does God actually have a longing uh, in his heart and in his mind? Last time we talked about Eden and what we long for in Eden, uh, we talked about sort of mourning the loss or grieving the loss of some of the things that were true of Eden. And one of those was the idea of innocence that we grieve the loss of innocence, we, we long for the truth of innocence to be reborn, um, for the sadness to come untrue about the loss of innocence. We still see um, sort of glimmers of innocence. I think we see it in children. And I see it in my, my grandchildren. And in particular, I was thinking this week about seeing it in my grandsons. There's something about um, little boys somewhere, you know, between six and nine um, that jokes become a very important part of the, the way they play. So my grandsons always have a joke. Um, Liam, in particular, uh, gets a magazine and it has jokes. That's the first place he turns is to the jokes, the riddles. And, and he loves to tell those jokes. It's when you're a grandparent, you laugh at all of the things that your grandchildren say are funny. Half of the time, the riddles that they have or the why did the chicken cross the road and the ridiculous answer that they come up with, uh, you just have to say, yeah, that is funny. But sometimes they will actually press it and say, do you get it? You know, they will tell you a joke. What's the difference between this and that? Or what happens when you cross this with that? And they'll split their sides laughing at it. And you you better laugh along. But they may just ask you, get it? Do you get it? Today I want to talk about something that I think I'm getting in, in kind of a new way in these days in my life. And they have to do with God's longing. So that's where I would like to take us. So as we think about what it is that God wants, let me bring you to just three stopping points. Uh, First of all, we're going to go back to uh, Eden, to the story of Eden. Then we're going to move forward to the story of the tabernacle. And then we're going to move forward to the story of Jesus coming to live in our midst. And I, I want to surface a secret, I think. Not a, not a secret that, that anyone wants hidden, but a secret that somehow or other um, is elusive. It, it's, it's not readily uh, apprehended. It's not readily grasped. And I, I want to come to the end of this by asking you the question, do you get it? Because I hope I'm getting it, and I really hope that you can get this as well. So if we go back to the story of Eden, there's just a very telling little verse. Uh, after the, the, the wonders of creation and the wonders of nature, uh, something terrible happens that the serpent comes along and sin enters the picture, and nothing is ever the same again. And in many ways, in fact, all ways, 
the sadnesses of our longing have to do with sin. It, it is the reason. It is the epidemic that we're all dealing with. So in Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 8 and 9, there, there's just this telling little verse that, that says this. They heard the sound of God strolling in the garden in the evening breeze. God called to the man, where are you? Where are you? The second stopping point is in uh, Exodus in chapter 40. And God is speaking to Moses. Now this is at the beginning of the, the travels of Israel through the wilderness. They're going to be there for 40 years. And one of the things that God provides to them in the, the wanderings in the wilderness is a tent. Um, it's a tabernacle. And in Exodus 40, verse 1, it simply says this, God spoke to Moses on the first day of the first month, set up the dwelling, the tent of meeting. Where are you? He called to Adam and Eve. In the wilderness wanderings, something provided right at the start was a place that is called the tabernacle. Tabernacle is a word that we hardly use, I think. Uh, it, it strictly means a sanctuary or a tent, uh, a place of meeting. And that's how it's actually explained. As, as God speaks to Moses, he says that what he's supposed to erect is the dwelling that's the tabernacle word itself and then he describes it the tent of meeting the third starting st stopping point is in john chapter one and in john chapter one um, verse 14 we're told this the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood that's the way eugene peterson translates it in in the message it's a lovely translation the idea that the word moved into the neighborhood. What is it that God wants? What is God's longing? Here's the, do you get it? Question that I think the Spirit has been asking me. And theoretically, I did get it. But in, in terms of it really dawning on me, it, it's like the... Uh, the old riddle or the old story about the man who sat up all night thinking about the sun and then suddenly it dawned on him. I thought for many years about the theology of heaven and earth, but I think it's dawning on me in, in a new way and I want to explain that to you. What is it that God wants? Very simply put, it's this. God wants to be with us. It's not a profound understanding, but it's a very profound truth that what God really longs for is to be with us. So before, I, I was forming, I think, a, a good theology of the fact that um, what we are called to is not to leave earth and go to heaven, but what we're called to is the work of bringing heaven to earth. That much I'm grasping, that much I'm figuring out, um, that what God really wants is heaven here. We've, we've labored with the idea of heaven, and I think, honestly, our, our concept of heaven has largely been something that is 
beyond us. It's not familiar to us. It's not ordinary for us. It's it's a special place that apparently is reserved for us. Um, it, it is set aside. It is to be the place that we uh, all gather together and we we serve and worship the Lamb, and it goes on forever and ever and ever. The idea that the afterlife and the eternal life is a life that is somehow ordinary to us, I think has escaped us. It's not ordinary to us in the sense that life now is ordinary. It will not be like ordinary life here. That's where the longings come in. I think we long for a new ordinary. We long for this world with all of its aspects, but rid of the epidemic of sin. We certainly are getting an illustration of that as we go through this epidemic. Uh, we want rid of it. Uh, it, it is, it's getting in the way of ordinary life, and we want to go back to ordinary life. We, I think, are, are pressing forward to ordinary life, but ordinary life in the created sense. What was it like when God created a perfect heaven and earth? We long for Uh, not something far away, different from here, but we long for this place completely rid of the scourge of sin. And what does God want? Well, as we look at these three little episodes, and, and they are among many, many others, the thing that is constant to them, the thing that is is kind of rhymed in them is God's apparent desire to actually be with us. To actually be with us, that's what I'm trying to get. So in the garden, what is it that God was hoping for when all of the creation was over, when when mankind was well established and man's job was defined? There's this just this little telling verse that says, in the cool of the day, when God came walking, he looked for Adam and Eve and said, where are you? What was that like? And and how does that feature into God's intent and God's purposes? I think what we're seeing there is the answer to the question, what does God want? What God wants is to be with us. What he wants is to be with us in the ordinariness of a perfect life. So in the cool of the day, uh, as Eugene Peterson puts it, as the breezes blow in the evening, and we get that lovely sort of sense of what that would be like. It would be just the the end of the day, maybe when the, the sun is setting and the breezes are rising. What God wanted out of all of this was to come and walk with Adam and Eve. I th- we're beginning to get a sense of, of the value of presence to one another. What have we missed um, through these months of the ordeal of, of COVID-19? Mostly what we've missed is the presence of one another. As things have begun to open up and we find ourselves with our circle of 10 and whatever else, Uh, many, many folks are finding just being able to be together, the presence, the physical presence of the people that we love 
has become fresh to us and uh, we've remembered that what was ordinary, like the ordinariness of being together was so precious that we didn't count it as precious until it was taken from us. And that's because we're created in God's image. What did he want when he created humankind? Bottom line is he wanted to be with us. Not that he wanted us to be something, not that he wanted us to do something. He simply wanted to be with us. His presence um, was his great longing and his great gift to us. In the second account, we have the, the event of the building of the tabernacle. And I'll show you a, a bit of a, um, an artist's rendering of what the tabernacle would have looked like. What we will see in this picture is that the tabernacle is where? It's right in the middle of the camp. It, it's the very center of the encampment. In fact, the way that the tribes were situated strategically was to surround the tent of meeting. What is a tabernacle for? It's called the tent of meeting. Why? Because want, God wanted to be with his people. When, when there's a, a failure on their part and, and God, as, as he's characterized as though he were having human emotions, says to Moses, I, I'll, I'll, I, I, I'm just going to destroy them or I'm, I'm, I'm not, not going to be with them anymore. Moses said, look, I will not go if your presence doesn't go with us. Moses understood that the presence of God with his people was the simple characteristic of the covenant relationship between Almighty God and his chosen people. So the tabernacle was, was God's sort of visual demonstration of his desire, his longing to be right there among his people. Now, because of sin, the desire that God had could not be satisfied. People could not warmly enter his presence and could not uh, have a fellowship with him like the walking in the garden in the cool of the day. But everything that is provided by the tabernacle and, and all of its furniture and all of its functions, all of that is to make a way for people to be able to have access to God, to get close to God, to have fellowship with God. It was incredibly handicapped. It was incredibly blocked as we're seeing things being blocked in, in our experience of, of presence with one another. But the tabernacle um, visually demonstrates the longing of God to be in the middle of his people. And the people knew that wherever the Shekinah glory was, that was the, the pillar of fire and cloud that, that, that was the very presence of God above the tabernacle, when it moved, then the camp moved because God was to be the center of the life of his people. The third stop that we made was in what John remembers of the coming of Jesus. And he says, when we had a look at him, when we watched him, when we came to know him, 
we realized that this was the word, and the word, we've said this before, the word is, is the, the term used by John to describe Jesus. When they really understood who he was, it dawned on them that God had come to live with them, that, that God had moved into the neighborhood. That, it is such a lovely expression, isn't it? Because when, when somebody you know, moves into the house down the street um, or the, the condo just along the way, you want to know who, who's arrived, who, who's, who's our new neighbor. And, and John says, here's the incredible thing. It's actually God that has become our neighbor. He has moved into the neighborhood. Well, why? Could God not have done what needed to be done about sin some other way? He certainly could have. Was it necessary for him to come and be with us and be with us for so long? Or was there another way that he could settle the debt, settle the problem? What we see here is that, that somehow or other, this is a foretaste of what God is wanting to do, wanting to accomplish for his longing into the future, which is to be here with us, to be among us. One of the things that Jesus said when he was going to have the, the meal with his, his disciples, he said, I have really longed to have this time with you. And we get the sense of Jesus enjoying being with his followers, being with his friends. We, we get the, the image of Jesus as being someone with whom you would love to spend time. You would not be bored to be with Jesus. You'd be watching what he would do next. You'd be listening to every next thing that he would say, every new story that he would bring along. And we, we get the sense of his delight in being here with us. What does God want? He wants to be with us. Let me go back to something I, I introduced a few weeks ago, which is kind of the academic framework around the question, what is God's connection with his created people? And we talked about the, the, the worldviews that predominated through, through modern history, or at least the, the history after the life of Christ. We might go on sort of a, a continuum between atheism, which says there is no God. There's, there's nothing between deity and humanity. It, it's just us. There is no God. The second worldview that we talked about was deism. Uh, deism is like the watchmaker who makes a watch and then winds it up and sets it in motion and then leaves. And... Um, the watch ticks away its time. The idea of deism is that th there is a God, or there is a being who created everything that there is. But once he did so, he left. Um, he's, he's absent, he's AWOL. The third, and as I mentioned, uh, theologians today would claim that this is really the worldview that we mostly have today. Even as Christians, they would claim that we live as Epicureans. So Epicureans um, are those who, who believe that maybe there's a God. Um, it, it, there may be and there may not be. It may be God as you perceive him. Uh, and, and they would say it really doesn't matter. 
because whether or not there is a God, he has nothing to do with life, with, with how life goes on. We're on our own. And honestly, that is, that's essentially how we live, particularly in the West. We live as though there's no God. We live as though this life is all there is. We live as though when this life is over, we're done. It, it's over. There's, there's nothing more. Whether we um, factor in a, a being, like to think that there is um, a deity, doesn't really matter. If it helps, go ahead. If we were to go on from there, I would propose to you today a new word. It's not even a real word, but it's the word tabernacleism. So we'll make it an ism. But tabernacleism is the belief that not only did God make us and hold us accountable at the end of the day, but that God is actually with us. He is involved in his creation. He has wanted to be. He is purposing that at the end he will be fully present to his creation. Tabernacleism would say, oh yes, in every way God factors into the way I live. How I think, uh, how I value, how I behave, it always is with in the back of my mind or at the front of my mind, that yes, indeed, there is a God who is with us. When Jesus was to be born, uh, the angel said, you'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the story of the Bible, if, if you were to track it through and ask what are the recurring themes, I propose that theme of presence, the theme of the actual presence of God in and with his creation is really the story that we're being told. And yet we live many, many times as though we were Epicureans. We live with sort of a vague notion of God or we live with a construct of God that serves us well. Um, as someone said, God created us in his image and we have returned the favor ever since. So if we do have a God, it's a God that we like. It's a God that we make. And at the end of the day, he's kind of dispensable because whatever we have needed to get from him, we have gotten. And to the degree that we live that way, we miss out on the incredible delight of the fulfillment of the longing of the God who made us. God does long indeed for something. And here it is. He longs to be with us. He wants to be with us. He, he wants to be with us, I would suggest, in the ordinariness of our lives. And see, there again, I think that this is what was elusive for me. I, I get that we, we want to bring heaven here. We don't just want to go away to some place called heaven. But along with that, everything that God made that, that is present to us in our world is the ordinariness of God's creation. It's spectacular, but it's ordinary. And God wants to be with us in the ordinariness of life. He, he, he didn't like the idea later on in the Old Testament that they would build him a temple. 
See, the, the tabernacle was his idea where he said, let's make it as simple as we possibly can. We'll use the materials that are available to us. We will, we will place it right in the middle and we will provide ways for it to be a place of thoroughfare. When, when David um, one night was musing or whatever and he thought, I, I have a f- fantastic house. I, my palace is, is just spectacular and God doesn't even have a house. So I, I should build him a house. Well, God kind of laughed and said, well, really, you want to build me a house? The heavens aren't big enough to contain me. Why would I need a house? But if that's what you want, go right ahead. And the temple became something special, something different. See, where the tabernacle was just the ordinariness of camp, just like camping, the temple was a special place. So if you wanted to have a relationship with God, it was, it was going to be identified with a special place, not the ordinary things in life, but the special things in life. And I think we, we've kind of migrated to that notion that whatever it is that God wants with us and from us is special stuff. It, it's, the, it's the other things. So we dichotomize our lives. Um, we, we separate the sacred from the secular. Uh, we make church a different place. Uh, I grew up in, in the day when children didn't run in church you didn't talk in church and before the service began you sat quietly in church and we were told that this was a special place this was a holy place and you you behaved differently because this was church i think there's something right about that but at the same time if if children are running in church i think god would be into the running don't you Because what God longed for in his creation was then to be able to come down and be with us, be in the middle of it, to to talk with us, to walk with us, to point out the things that he made, to point out the hills, the mountains, the oceans, um, the the animals, and, and just enjoy the ordinariness of the creation. So the temple was a nice idea, but it it got us going off on the wrong track so that we think that everything to do with God is different, is is separate, is special, while all the while God is saying, do you know what I want? I want to hang out with you in the ordinary things of life. I, I remember when my parents would come to visit after we had gotten married, we're having our family and so on. And when they would come to visit, you would think of all the special places that you'd like to take them. You know, we lived in Vancouver, so there were umpteen lovely places to visit. But every now and then, my dad would just say something like, we just, we just want to do whatever you do. You don't have to do anything special for us. You don't have to make special plans for us. We, you don't have to have these, you know, planned excursions for us whatever you do we would just like to be there with you we'd like to hang out with you they didn't use the term hang out because they're proper and irish that's really i think what god is is helping dawn on me that if liam were to ask me do you get it 
honestly, I think I'm beginning to get it that not only do we bring heaven to earth, but God wants also to come to earth. He, he, he wants to be here with us in the ordinariness of, of our lives. Some years ago, along with our great friend Phil, uh, I had a trip to India to, um, it was a celebration of the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, you've met um, Philip Timothy, the, the evangelist who works in the mountains among the Sora people. And once a year they come down from the mountains, they literally come down from the mountains by the tens of thousands. And they build a tabernacle. They, they build like a grass and wood meeting place. And we were invited to come and be part of this wonderful celebration and I, I got to speak to these tens of thousands of eager, eager followers now of Christ. Uh, Philip's father had worked among the Sora people for his whole life without seeing anyone convert to Christianity. And now Philip, his son, has seen village after village after village come to Christ and and Phil and I saw hundreds of people baptized one Sunday morning in a dirty river before we had breakfast. And we kept on looking at one another and, and saying, can you believe this? It's just astonishing. And we would say to Philip, you know, this is not normal. This doesn't happen around the world. And he would say, well, why not? Why not? Indeed. One of the things that, that impressed me in all of this uh, it, and it's w without trying to cast aspersions on, on anyone. Phil told me that we were going to live in, he hoped it would be a tent. He hoped there would be something that would cover us, protect us from animals and, and nature and so on. He didn't think there would be bathrooms, um, but he, he felt like it was important for us to come and stay with the people, which that's my point. Indeed, um, Phil and I were put up in, in these lovely grass huts with comfortable beds, and Philip's lovely young daughter brought us breakfast every morning. They had western toilets. They even rigged showers. So it, it, was, it was like a five-star hotel. But that's not the point. There was another visitor, and he made it clear that he, he wouldn't stay overnight, day by day in the camp. He wanted to be taken back to the city where he would stay in a hotel. And I, I felt as though that was a, a, a little bit offensive to the people, but it's not my business. And he had reasons, I think, that he, he wanted to go away. But do you know he missed the whole point. He missed the whole thing. You've not seen anything um, that defines play and excitement and joy until you've seen a whole swarm of Sora children climbing on Phil. So the Sora people are not very tall. Phil is huge. And they were being very careful of us and, you know, they would shoo the children away and Phil would just bring them on and honestly 
to see him swinging kids around and kids all over him, he gave his camera to the kids and said, just go take pictures of everything that you can with delight. They ran, they ran off to, to take their pictures. Our friend, at the end of the conference, he was kind of nonplussed about the whole thing. It was, yeah, yeah, it was something he did. For us, I think it became a highlight. And the difference was that being with the people, um, first of all said to them that we enjoyed them, that we wanted to be friends with them, that we wanted to eat their food. We wanted to drink the water that they would go with jugs on their heads to collect from the well and so on. Uh, we wanted to watch the baptisms. We wanted to join in the singing and in the dancing and the, the great celebration. I've had the chance over the years to visit many, many mission fields and, and many missionaries. And as I reflected on that this week, it, it impressed me that um, Canadian missionaries are the best in the world. I have a theory about why Canadians make really good missionaries. I'll explain that to you if anybody wants to ask. But I'm convinced that Canadian missionaries are are the best missionaries in the world. Canadians make great missionaries. And I, I, I went through my mind um, over the, the various scenarios and scenes that I can remember. I, I remember Gatab, a small village up in the mountains in northern Kenya um, where Chuck Pinkerton, who was a missionary pilot, flew me up um, over the, the Rift Valley in a little airplane and we saw the, the beauty of, of creation and, and all that. Um, I, I think of Uganda, where um, we we got to 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 live um, among the people, go to the markets, and celebrate what what God was doing through the Anglican Church in in that context. Um, as as uh, John Castles was was my missionary friend, and he with his wife Chris were my hosts. Um, I I, th- I think of uh, Nairobi. And my time there with with Elaine Maxwell, who a, a mi- was a missionary with SIM, and on and on they go to Ni- Nigeria, where Wilf and Jean Rose, whom you've met here at, at Southside, um, went and, and moved in and managed book projects where um, books were given to pastors who walked from all over the country to be taught and to receive these, these uh, books. The thing that is common to every one of those situations was the sincere desire of the missionaries to live among the people. All of the people that I've mentioned by name were deliberate in wanting to live with the people. Uh, to the extent that one of them while policy dictated that she should live in a compound, and it's not a pejorative term, it's just a missionary reality, a place that was guarded away from the people. Uh, She fought with the organization because she wanted to live with the people, not away from the people. I I saw various other missionary families who, uh, who had compounds 
And once you went into the compound, you felt as though you had just arrived in the USA or Australia or England, whatever it is, because they had transplanted home into the new place. It's all fine. I have no judgment, except that the power of the life of these missionaries was the power of being among the people, of being with them. And because they loved and were with the people, they won the people's hearts and they were accepted, welcomed into very different cultures from their their own home cultures. What is that about? It's a godly thing that says what God wants is to be with us in the ordinary things. The most enjoyable things for me in, in all of those trips was just... Um, exploring the ordinariness of life, the markets. If, if, if all I did was go to those different places and allow my missionary hosts to, to take me to the market, just to hear the noise of the market, the hubbub, to see the, 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 the bickering, the, all of the things that were going on, to, to, to smell the smells, um, to to see the throngs of people that exist in so, so many parts of the world, unlike North America, where people are, there are just crowds and throngs wherever you go. Those were delightful because th- those were the ordinary lives of ordinary people. And if I found delight in going to the market with my friends, how much more does God find delight in going with me to wherever I'm going to go this afternoon, and you as well. See, that's what I'm getting, that, that God does not want us to bring heaven to earth and make earth a holy place. God wants us to bring heaven to earth so that what he intended from the very beginning in all of its beauty, in all of its glory, could be thoroughly enjoyed. The problem is sin, and it is a massive problem, but it has been dealt with. And because it has been dealt with, what God wanted, he will receive. What God longed for will be satisfied. And isn't it a crazy thing that what he longed for is not that we should have thousands of voiced choirs singing anthems, he will love that too. But what he wanted was just to be with us in the ordinariness of living life, in a beautiful setting which he created for us to be home. So Liam would say, Gramps, do you get it? And I'd say yes, but I may not have. And along the way, I think someone might have, have asked, do you get it that God wants to be with us? And I might have said, yeah, I get it. But I really didn't. Until it dawned on me that that that's the whole thing. That God, more than anything else, Christ, more than anything else, the Holy Spirit, more than anything else, wants to be with us, with me, and with you. What difference will that make today, this week, this year? We, We don't have to wait for something that we get taken away to. We don't have to imagine what that different place is going to be like. 
We can just look around us and say that for the here and now, God wants to be with us. He's going to fix it so that he can be with us in a perfectly powerful way. Uh, But for now, he wants to know what's going on in your life and in my life, and he wants to be part of it. That's the dawning. That's the, do you get it? And I hope that you do.